Captain Vimes ran up Short Street, the longest in the city, which shows the famous Moorpork subtle sense of humour in a nutshell, with Sergeant Colon stumbling along behind, protesting. Nobby was outside the drum, hopping from one foot to another. In times of danger, he had a way of propelling himself from place to place without apparently moving through the intervening space, which could put any ordinary matter transporter to shame. "'He's fighting in there!' he stuttered, grabbing the captain's arm. "'All by himself,' said the captain. "'No, with everyone!' shouted Nobby, hopping from one foot to the other. "'Oh!' Conscience said, "'There's three of you. He's wearing the same uniform. He's one of your men. Remember poor old Gaskin.' Another part of his brain, the hated, despicable part, which had nevertheless enabled him to survive in the guards these past ten years, said, "'It's rude to butt in. We'll wait until he's finished, and then ask him if he wants any assistance. Besides, it isn't watch policy to interfere in fights. It's a lot simpler to go in afterwards and arrest anyone recumbent.' There was a crash as a nearby window burst outwards and deposited a stunned fighter on the opposite side of the street. "'I think...' said the captain carefully, that we'd better take prompt action. That's right, said Sergeant Colon. A man could get hurt standing here. They sidled cautiously a little way down the street, where the sound of splintering wood and breaking glass wasn't so overpowering, and carefully avoided one another's eyes. There was the occasional scream from within the tavern, and every now and again a mysterious ringing noise as though someone was hitting a gong with their knee. They stood in a little pool of embarrassed silence. "'You had your holidays this year, Sergeant?' said Captain Vimes, eventually rocking back and forth on his heels. "'Yes, sir. Sent the wife to Quirm last month, sir, to see her aunt.' "'Very nice at this time of year, I'm told.' "'Yes, sir.' "'All the geraniums and what not.' A figure tumbled out of an upper window and crumpled on the cobbles. "'That's why they've got the floral sundial, isn't it?' said the Captain desperately. "'Yes, sir. Very nice, sir. All done with little flowers, sir.' There was a sound like something hitting something else repeatedly with something heavy and wooden. Vimes winced. I don't think he'd have been happy in the watch, sir, said the sergeant in a kindly voice. The door of the mended drum had been torn off during riots so often that specially tempered hinges had recently been installed, and the fact that the next tremendous crash tore the whole door and doorframe out of the wall only showed that quite a lot of money had been wasted. A figure in the midst of the wreckage tried to raise itself on its elbows, groaned, and slumped back. "'Well, it would seem that it's all,' the captain began, and Nobby said, "'It's that bloody troll!' "'What?' said Vimes. "'It's the troll, the one they have on the door!' They advanced with extreme caution. It was indeed detritus the splatter. It is very difficult to hurt a creature that is, to all intents and purposes, a mobile stone. Someone seemed to have managed it, though. The fallen figure was groaning like a couple of bricks being crushed together. "'That's a turn-up for the books,' said the sergeant, vaguely. All three of them turned and peered at the brightly lit rectangle where the doorway had been. Things had definitely quietened down a bit in there. "'You don't think,' said the sergeant, "'that he's winning, do you?' The captain thrust out his jaw. "'We owe it to our colleague and fellow officer,' he said, to find out. There was a whimper from behind them. They turned and saw Nobby hopping on one leg and clutching a foot. What's up with you, bad? said Vimes. Nobby made agonised noises. Sergeant Colon began to understand. 
Although cautious obsequiousness was the general tenor of watch behaviour, there wasn't one member of the entire squad who hadn't at some time been at the wrong end of detritus's fists. Nobby had merely tried to play catch-up in the very best traditions of policemen everywhere. He went and kicked him in the rocks, sir, he said. Disgraceful, said the captain vaguely. He hesitated. Do trolls have rocks, he said. Take it from me, sir. Good grief, Vimes said. Dame nature moves in strange ways, doesn't she? Right you are, sir, said the sergeant obediently. And now, said the captain, drawing his sword, forward. Yes, sir. This means you too, sergeant, the captain added. Ah, yes, sir. It was possibly the most circumspect advance in the history of military manoeuvres, right down at the bottom end of the scale that things like the charge of the light brigade are at the top of. They peered cautiously around the ravished doorway. There were a number of people sprawled across the tables, or what remained of the tables. Those who were still conscious looked unhappy about it. Carrot stood in the middle of the floor. His rusty chainmail was torn, his helmet was missing, he was swaying a little from side to side and one eye was already starting to swell, but he recognised the captain, dropped the feebly protesting customer he was holding and threw a salute. Beg to report 31 offences of making an affray, sir, and 56 cases of riotous behaviour, 41 offences of obstructing an officer of the watch in the execution of his duty, 13 offences of assault with a deadly weapon, 6 cases of malicious lingering and... And Corporal Nobby hasn't even shown me one rope yet. He fell backwards, breaking a table. Captain Vimes coughed. He wasn't at all sure what you were supposed to do next. As far as he knew, the watch had never been put in this position before. I think you should get him a drink, Sergeant, he said. Yes, sir. And get me one, too. Yes, sir. Have one yourself, why don't you? Yes, sir. And you, Corporal, will you please... What are you doing? "'Searching the body, sir,' said Nobby quickly, straightening up, "'for incriminating evidence and that.' "'In their muddy pouches.' Nobby thrust his hands behind his back. "'You never know, sir,' he said. The sergeant had located a miraculously unbroken bottle of spirits in the wreckage and forced a lot of its contents between Carrot's lips. "'What have we got to do with all this lot, Captain?' he said over his shoulder. "'I haven't the faintest idea.' said Vimes, sitting down. The watch jail was just about big enough for six very small people, which were usually the only sort to be put in it. Whereas these... He looked around him desperately. There was Nork the Impaler lying under a table and making bubbling noises. There was Big Henry. There was Grabber Simmons, one of the most feared barroom fighters in the city. All in all, there were a lot of people it wouldn't pay to be near when they woke up. We could cut their throats, sir said Nobby, veteran of a score of residual battlefields. He had found an unconscious fighter who was about the right size and was speculatively removing his boots, which looked quite new and about the right size. That would be entirely wrong, said Vimes. He wasn't sure how you actually went about cutting a throat. It had never hitherto been an option. No, he said. I think perhaps we'll let them off with a caution. There was a groan from under the bench. Besides, he went on quickly, we should get our fallen comrade to a place of safety as soon as possible. Good point, said the sergeant. He took a swig of the spirits for the sake of his nerves. The two of them managed to sling Carrot between them and guide his wobbling legs up the steps. Vimes, collapsing under the weight, looked around for Nobby. Corporal Nobbs, he rasped, why are you kicking people when they're down? Safest way, sir, said Nobby. 
Nobby had long ago been told about fighting fair and not striking a fallen opponent, and he had then given some creative thought to how these rules applied to someone four feet tall with the muscle tone of an elastic band. Well, stop it. I want you to caution the felons, said the captain. How, sir? Well, you... Captain Vimes stopped. He was blowed if he knew. He'd never done it. Just do it, he snapped. Surely I don't have to tell you everything. Nobby was left alone at the top of the stairs. A general muttering and groaning from the floor indicated that people were waking up. Nobby thought quickly. He shook an admonitory cheese straw of a finger. Let that be a lesson to you, he said. Don't do it again, and ran for it. Up in the darkness of the rafters, the librarian scratched himself reflectively. Life was certainly full of surprises. He was going to watch developments with interest. He shelled a thoughtful peanut with his feet and swung away into the darkness. The Supreme Grand Master raised his hands. Are the fury bulls of destiny ritually chastised? That evil and loose thinking may be banished from this sanctified circle? Yup. The Supreme Grand Master lowered his hands. Yup, he said. Yup, said Brother Dunnikin happily. Done it myself. You are supposed to say, Yea, O Supreme One, said the Supreme Grand Master. Honestly, I've told you enough times, if you're not all going to enter into the spirit of the thing. Yes, you listen to what the Supreme Grand Master tells you, said Brother Watchtower, glaring at the errant brother. I spent hours chastising them furibles, muttered Brother Dunnikin. Carry on, O Supreme Grand Master, said Brother Watchtower. Very well, then, said the Grand Master. Tonight we'll try another experimental summoning. I trust you have obtained suitable raw material, brothers? Scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed, not that you get any thanks. All sorted out, Supreme Grand Master, said Brother Watchtower. It was, the Grand Master conceded, a slightly better collection. The brothers had certainly been busy. Pride of place was given to an illuminated tavern sign, whose removal the Grand Master thought should have merited some sort of civic award. At the moment, the E was a ghastly pink and flashed on and off at random. I got that, said Brother Watchtower proudly. They thought I was mending it or something, but I took my screwdriver and I... Yes, well done, said the Supreme Grand Master. Shows... Initiative? Thank you, Supreme Grand Master, beamed Brother Watchtower. Knuckles rubbed raw, all red and cracked. Never even got my three dollars back, either. No one as much as says... And now, said the Supreme Grand Master, taking up the book, we will begin to commence. Shut up, Brother Dunnikin. Every town in the multiverse has a part that is something like Ark Morpork's Shades. It's usually the oldest part, its lanes faithfully following the original tracks of medieval cows going down to the river, and they have names like The Shambles, The Rookery, Snig's Alley. Most of Ark Moorpork is like that in any case, but The Shades was even more so, a sort of black hole of bread-in-the-brickwork lawlessness. Put it like this, even the criminals were afraid to walk the streets. The Watch didn't set foot in it. They were accidentally setting foot in it now, not very reliably, it had been a trying night, and they had been steadying their nerves. They were now so steady 
that all four were relying on the other three to keep them upright and steer. Captain Vimes passed the bottle back to the sergeant. Shabod, uh, he thought for a bit. You, he said, drunk in front of a super, superior officer. The sergeant tried to speak, but it could only come out with a series of S's. Put yourself on a charge, said Captain Vimes, rebounding off a wall. He glared at the brickwork. This wall assaulted me, he declared. Ah, think you're tough, eh? Well, I'm an officer of the law. I'll have you now. And we don't take any... any... Uh. He blinked slowly once or twice. What's it we don't take any of, Sergeant? He said. Chances, sir? said Colon. No, 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 no. It's other stuff. Never mind. Anyway, we don't take any of it from anyone. Vague visions were trotting through his mind of a room full of criminal types, people that had jeered at him, people whose very existence had offended and taunted him for years, lying around and groaning. He was a little unclear how it had happened, but some almost forgotten part of him, some much younger Vimes with a bright shining breastplate and big hopes, a Vimes he thought the alcohol had long ago drowned, was suddenly restless. Shall I... shall I... shall I tell you something, Sergeant? he said. Sir? The four of them bounced gently off another wall and began another slow, crab-wise waltz across the alley. This city, this city, this city, Sergeant, this city is as a woman, Sergeant, Sergeant, a woman, Sergeant, ancient radical beauty, Sergeant, but if you fall in love with her, then, then she'll kick in the teeth. She's a woman, said Colan. He screwed up his sweating face with the effort of thought. Seat miles wide, sir? It's got a river in it. Lots of houses and stuff, sir, he reasoned. Ah, 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 Vimes waggled an unsteady finger at him. Never. Never, never said it was a small woman, did I? Be fair. He waved the bottle. Another random thought exploded in the froth of his mind. We showed him anyway, he said excitedly, as the four of them began an oblique shuffle back to the opposite wall. Showed him, didn't we? Taught them a forget they won't lessen in a hurry, eh? That's right said the sergeant, but not very enthusiastically. He was still wondering about his superior officer's sex life. But Vimes was in the kind of mood that didn't need encouragement. Ah, he shouted at the dark alleyways. Don't like it, eh? Taste of your own medicine thingy. Well, now you can bootle in your trims. He threw the empty bottle into the air. Two o'clock, he yelled, and all's well. Which was astonishing news to the various shadowy figures who'd been silently shadowing the four men for some time. Only sheer puzzlement had prevented them making their attentions sharp and plain. These people are clearly guards, they were thinking. They've got the right helmets and everything. And yet here they are in the shades. So they were being watched with the fascination that a pack of wolves might focus on a handful of sheep, who had not only trotted into the clearing, but were making playful butts and baaing noises. 
The outcome was, of course, going to be mutton, but in the meantime, inquisitiveness gave a stay of execution. Carrot raised his muzzy head. Where are we? he groaned. On our way home, said the sergeant. He looked up at the pitted, worm-eaten and knife-scored sign above them. We're just going down, going down, go, uh, going down, he squinted. Sweetheart Lane? Sweetheart Lane's not on the way home, slurred Nobby. We wouldn't want to go down Sweetheart Lane. It's in the shades. <laughs> Catch us going down Sweetheart Lane. There was a crowded moment in which realisation did the icy work of a good night's sleep and several pints of black coffee. The three of them, by unspoken agreement, clustered up towards Carrot. "'What are we going to do, Captain?' said Colon. "Uh, we could call for help,' said the captain uncertainly. "'What, here? You've got a point.' I reckon we must have turned left out of Silver Street instead of right, quavered Nobby. Well, that's one mistake we won't make again in a hurry, said the captain. Then he wished he hadn't. They could hear footsteps. Somewhere off to their left, there was a snigger. We must form a square, said the captain. They all tried to form a point. Hey, what was that? said Sergeant Colon. What? There it was again, sort of a leathery sound. Captain Vimes tried not to think about hoods and garrotting. There were, he knew, many gods. There was a god for every trade. There was a beggar's god, a whore's goddess, a thieves' god, probably even an assassin's god. He wondered whether there was somewhere in that vast pantheon a god who would look kindly on hard-pressed and fairly innocent law enforcement officers who were quite definitely about to die. There probably wasn't, he thought bitterly. Something like that just wasn't stylish enough for gods. Catch any god worrying about any poor sod trying to do his best for a handful of dollars a month, not them. Gods went overboard for smart bastards, whose idea of a day's work was prizing the ruby eye of the earwig king out of its socket, not for some unimaginative sap who just pounded the pavement every night. More sort of slithery, said the sergeant, who liked to get things right. And then there was a sound, perhaps a volcanic sound, or the sound of a boiling geezer, but at any rate a long, dry roar of a sound, like the bellows in the forges of the Titans. But it was not so bad as the light, which was blue-white, and the sort of light to print the patterns of your eyeballs, blood vessels on the back of the inside of your skull. They both went on for hundreds of years, and then instantly stopped. The dark aftermath was filled with purple images, and once the ears regained an ability to hear, a faint clinkery sound. The guards remained perfectly still for some time. Well, well, said the captain weakly. After a further pause, he said very clearly, every consonant slotting perfectly into place, Sergeant, take some men and investigate that, will you? Investigate what, sir? said Colon, but it had already dawned on the captain that if the sergeant took some men, it would leave him, Captain Vimes, all alone. No, I've a better idea. We'll all go, he said firmly. They all went. Now that their eyes were used to the darkness, they could see an indistinct red glow ahead of them. It turned out to be a wall cooling rapidly. 
Bits of calcined brickwork were falling off as they contracted, making little pinging noises. That wasn't the worst bit. The worst bit was what was on the wall. They stared at it. They stared at it for a long time. It was only an hour or two till dawn, and no one even suggested trying to find their way back in the dark. They waited by the wall. At least it was warm. They tried not to look at it. Eventually, Colon stretched uneasily and said, Chin up, Captain, it could have been worse. Vimes finished the bottle. It didn't have any effect. There were some types of sobriety that you just couldn't budge. Yes, he said. It could have been us. The Supreme Grand Master opened his eyes. Once again, he said, we have achieved success. The brethren burst into a ragged cheer. The brothers Watchtower and Fingers linked arms and danced an enthusiastic jig in their magic circle. The Supreme Grand Master took a deep breath. First the carrot, he thought, and now the stick. He liked the stick. Silence! he screamed. Brother Fingers, Brother Watchtower, cease this shameful display, he screeched. The rest of you, be silent. They quietened down like rowdy children who have just seen the teacher come into the room. Then they quietened down a lot more, like children who have just seen the teacher's expression. The Supreme Grand Master let this sink in, and then stalked along their ragged ranks. I suppose, he said, that we think we've done some magic, do we? Hmm? Brother Watchtower? Brother Watchtower swallowed. Well, er, uh, you said we were, I mean... You haven't done anything yet? Well, er, uh, no, er... Uh, Brother Watchtower trembled. Do real wizards leap about after a tiny spell and start chanting, Here we go, here we go, here we go? Brother Watchtower? Hmm? Well, we were sort of, uh... The Supreme Grand Master spun on his heel. And do they keep looking apprehensively at the woodwork, Brother Plasterer? Brother Plasterer hung his head. He hadn't realised anyone had noticed. When the tension was twanging satisfactorily, like a bowstring... The Supreme Grand Master stood back. Why do I bother? he said, shaking his head. I could have chosen anyone. I could have picked the best. But I've got a bunch of children. Er, uh, honest, said Brother Watchtower. We was making an effort. I mean, we was really concentrating, weren't we, lads? Yes, they chorused. The Supreme Grand Master glared at them. There's no room in this brotherhood for brothers who are not behind us all the way, he warned. With almost visible relief, the brethren, like panicked sheep who see that a hurdle has been opened in the fold, galloped towards the opening. No worries about that, your supremacy, said Brother Watchtower fervently. Commitment must be our watchword, said the Supreme Grand Master. Watchword? Yeah said Brother Watchtower. He nudged Brother Plasterer, whose eyes had strayed to the skirting board again. What? Oh, yeah, watchword. Yeah, said Brother Plasterer. And trust and fraternity, said the Supreme Grand Master. Yeah, and them too, said Brother Fingers. So, said the Supreme Grand Master, if there be anyone here not anxious, yea, eager to continue in this great work, let him step forward now.
No one moved. They're hooked. Ye gods, I'm good at this, thought the Supreme Grandmaster. I can play on their horrible little minds like a xylophone. It's amazing the sheer power of mundanity. Who'd have thought that weakness could be a greater force than strength? But you have to know how to direct it, and I do. Very well, then, he said, and now we will repeat the oath. He led their stumbling, terrified voices through it, noting with approval the strangled way they said, Figin, and he kept one eye on Brother Fingers, too. He's slightly brighter than the others, he thought, slightly less gullible, at least. Better make sure I'm always the last to leave. Don't want any clever ideas about following me home. You need a special kind of mind to rule a city like Ark Morpork, and Lord Vetinari had it. But then he was a special kind of person. He baffled and infuriated the lesser merchant princes to the extent that they had long ago given up trying to assassinate him, and now merely jockeyed for position amongst themselves. Anyway, any assassin who tried to attack the patrician would be hard put to it to find enough flesh to insert the dagger. While other lords dined on larks stuffed with peacock's tongues, Lord Vetinari considered that a glass of boiled water and half a slice of dry bread was an elegant sufficiency. It was exasperating. He appeared to have no vice that anyone could discover. You'd have thought with that pale, equine face that he'd inclined towards stuff with whips, needles, and young women in dungeons. The other lords could have accepted that, nothing wrong with whips and needles in moderation. But the patrician apparently spent his evenings studying reports, and on special occasions, if he could stand the excitement, playing chess. He wore black a lot. It wasn't particularly impressive black, such as the best assassins wore, but the sober, slightly shabby black of a man who doesn't want to waste time in the mornings wondering what to wear. And you had to get up very early in the morning to get the better of the patrician. In fact, it was wiser not to go to bed at all. But he was popular, in a way. Under his hand, for the first time in a thousand years, Ankh Morpork operated. It might not be fair or just or particularly democratic, but it worked. He tended it as one tends a topiary bush, encouraging a growth here, pruning an errant twig there. It was said that he would tolerate absolutely anything, apart from anything that threatened the city. And here it was. Oh, and my artists. It was a strange aversion, but there you are. Anyone in baggy trousers and a white face who tried to ply their art anywhere within Ankh's crumbling walls would very quickly find themselves in a scorpion pit, on one wall of which was painted the advice, Learn the words. He stared at the stricken wall for a long time, while the rain dripped off his chin and soaked his clothes. Behind him, once, hovered nervously. Then one long, thin, blue-veined hand reached out, and the fingertips traced the shadows. Well, not so much shadows, more a series of silhouettes. The outline was very distinct. Inside, there was the familiar pattern of brickwork. Outside, though, something had fused the wall in a rather nice ceramic substance, giving the ancient flettons a melted mirror-like finish. The shapes outlined in brickwork showed a tableau of six men, frozen in an attitude of surprise. Various upraised hands had quite clearly been holding knives and cutlasses. The patrician looked down silently on the pile of ash at his feet. A few streaks of molten metal might once have been the very same weapons that were now so decisively etched into the wall. Hmm, he said. 
Captain Vimes respectfully led him across the lane and into Fast Luck Alley, where he pointed out Exhibit A, to wit... Footprints, he said, which is stretching it a bit, sir. They're more what you'd call... claws. One might go so far as to say... talons. The patrician stared at the prints in the mud. His expression was quite unreadable. I see, he said eventually. And do you have an opinion about all this, mm, Captain? The Captain did. In the hours until dawn, he'd had all sorts of opinions, starting with the conviction that it had been a big mistake to be born. And then the grey light had filtered even into the shades, and he was still alive and uncooked, and had looked around him with an expression of idiot relief, and seen, not a yard away, these footprints. That had not been a good moment to be sober. Well, sir, he said, I know that dragons have been extinct for thousands of years, sir. Yes, the patrician's eyes narrowed. Vimes plunged on. But, sir, the thing is... Do they know? Sergeant Colon said he heard a leathery sound just before... Uh, just before... Uh, the offence. So you think an extinct, and indeed a possibly entirely mythical dragon, flew into the city, landed in this narrow alley, incinerated a group of criminals, and then flew away, said the patrician, or one might say it was a very public-spirited creature. Well, when you put it like that, if I recall, the dragons of legend were solitary and rural creatures who shunned people and dwelt in forsaken, out-of-the-way places, said the patrician. They were hardly urban creatures. No, sir said the captain, repressing a comment that if he wanted to find a really forsaken, out-of-the-way place, then the shades would fit the bill pretty well. Besides, said Lord Vetinari, one would imagine that someone would have noticed. Wouldn't you agree? The captain nodded at the wall and its dreadful freeze. Apart from them, you mean, sir? In my opinion, said Lord Vetinari, it's some kind of warfare. Possibly a rival gang has hired a wizard? A little local difficulty? Could be linked to all this strange thieving, sir, volunteered once. But there's the footprints, sir, said Vimes doggedly. We're close to the river, said the patrician. Possibly it was, uh, perhaps, a wading bird of some sort? A mere coincidence, he added. "'But I should cover them over if I were you. "'We don't want people getting the wrong idea "'and jumping to silly conclusions, do we?' "'He added sharply. "'Vimes gave in. "'As you wish, sir,' he said, looking at his sandals. "'The patrician patted him on the shoulder. "'Never mind,' he said. "'Carry on. "'Good show of initiative, that man. "'Patrolling in the shades, too. "'Well done.' "'He turned and almost walked into the wall of chain mail "'that was carrot.' To his horror, Captain Vimes saw his newest recruit point politely to the patrician's coach. Around it, fully armed and wary, were six members of the palace guard who straightened up and took a wary interest. Vimes disliked them intensely. They had plumes on their helmets. He hated plumes on a guard. He heard Carrot say, "'Excuse me, sir, is this your coach, sir?' And the patrician looked him blankly up and down and said, 
It is. Who are you, young man? Carrot saluted. Lance Constable Carrot, sir. Carrot. Carrot. That name rings a bell. Lupine once, who had been hovering behind him, whispered in the patrician's ear. His face brightened. Ah, the young thief-taker. A little error there, I think, but commendable. No person is above the law, eh? No, sir, said Carrot. Commendable, commendable, said the patrician. And now, gentlemen, about your coach, sir, said Carrot doggedly. I couldn't help noticing that the front offside wheel, contrary to the... He's going to arrest the patrician, Vimes told himself, the thought trickling through his brain like an icy rivulet. He's actually going to arrest the patrician, the supreme ruler. He's going to arrest him. That is what he's actually going to do. The boy doesn't know the meaning of the word fear. Oh, wouldn't it be a good idea if he knew the meaning of the word survival? And I can't get my jaw muscles to move. We're all dead. Or worse, we're all detained at the patrician's pleasure. And as we all know, he's seldom that pleased. It was at this precise moment that Sergeant Colon earned himself a metaphorical medal. Lance Constable Carrot, he shouted. Attention, Lance Constable Carrot, bow to turn. Lance Constable Carrot, quick, march. Carrot brought himself to attention like a barn being raised and stared straight ahead with a ferocious expression of acute obedience. Well done, that man, said the patrician thoughtfully as Carrot strode stiffly away. Carry on, Captain, and do come down heavily on any silly rumours about dragons, right? Yes, sir, said Captain Vimes. Good man. The coach rattled off, the bodyguard running alongside. Behind him, Captain Vimes was only vaguely aware of the sergeant yelling at the retreating carrot to stop. He was thinking. He looked at the prince in the mud. He used his regulation pike, which he knew was exactly seven feet long, to measure their size and the distance between them. He whistled under his breath. Then, with considerable caution, he followed the alley around the corner. It led to a small, padlocked and dirt-encrusted door in the back of a timber warehouse. There was something very wrong, he thought. The prints came out of the alley, but they don't go in. And we don't often get any wading birds in the ark, mainly because the pollution would eat their legs away, and anyway it's easier for them to walk on the surface. He looked up. A myriad washing line crisscrossed the narrow rectangle of the sky as efficiently as a net. So he thought something big and fiery came out of this alley, but didn't come into it. And the patrician is very worried about it. I've been told to forget about it. He noticed something else at the side of the alley and bent down and picked up a fresh, empty peanut shell. He tossed it from hand to hand, staring at nothing. Right now he needed a drink, but perhaps it ought to wait. The librarian knuckled his way urgently along the dark aisles between the slumbering bookshelves. The rooftops of the city belonged to him. Oh, assassins and thieves might make use of them, but he'd long ago found the forest of chimneys, buttresses, gargoyles and weather vanes a convenient and somehow comforting alternative to the streets. At least up until now. It had seemed amusing and instructive to follow the watch into the shades, an urban jungle which held no fears for a three-hundred-pound ape. But now the nightmare he had seen while brachiating across a dark alley would, if he had been human, have made him doubt the evidence of his own eyes. As an ape, he had no doubts whatsoever about his eyes and believed them all the time. Right now he wanted to concentrate them urgently on a book that might hold a clue.
It was in a section no one bothered with much these days. The books in there were not really magical. Dust lay accusingly on the floor. Dust with footprints in it. Ooh, said the librarian in the warm gloom. He proceeded cautiously now, realising with a sense of inevitability that the footprints seemed to have the same destination in mind as he did. He turned a corner, and there it was. The section, the bookcase, the shelf, the gap. There are many horrible sights in the multiverse. Somehow, though, to a soul attuned to the subtle rhythms of a library, there are few worse sights than a hole where a book ought to be. Someone had stolen a book. In the privacy of the oblong office, his personal sanctum, the patrician paced up and down. He was dictating a stream of instructions. "'And send some men to paint that wall,' he finished. Lupine once raised an eyebrow. "'Is that wise, sir?' he said. "'You don't think a frieze of ghastly shadows will cause comment and speculation?' said the patrician sourly. "'Not as much as fresh paint in the shades,' said once, evenly. "'The patrician hesitated a moment. "'Good point,' he snapped. "'Have some men demolish it.' "'He reached the end of the room, spun on his heel, and stalked up it again. "'Dragons! "'As if there were not enough important, enough real things to take up his time. "'Do you believe in dragons?' he said. "'Once shook his head. "'They were impossible, sir.' "'So I've heard.' said Lord Vetinari. He reached the opposite wall, turned. "'Would you like me to investigate further?' said once. "'Yes, do so.' "'And I shall ensure the watch take great care,' said once. The patrician stopped his pacing. "'The watch! The watch! My dear chap, the watch are a bunch of incompetence commanded by a drunkard. It's taken me years to achieve it. The last thing we need to concern ourselves with is the watch. He thought for a moment. Ever seen a dragon once? One of the big ones, I mean. Ah, they're impossible, you said. They're just legend, really. Superstition, said once. Hmm, said the patrician. And the thing about legends, of course, is that they are legendary. Exactly, sir. Even so... The patrician paused and stared at once for some time. Oh, well, he said. Sort it out. I'm not having any of this dragon business. It's the type of thing that makes people restless. Put a stop to it. When he was alone, he stood and looked out gloomily over the twin city. It was drizzling again. Ark Morpork. Brawling city of a hundred thousand souls. "'and as the patrician privately observed, ten times that number of actual people. "'The fresh rain glistened on the panorama of towers and rooftops, "'all unaware of the teeming, rancorous world it was dropping into. "'Luckier rain fell on upland sheep, or whispered gently over forests, "'or pattered somewhat incestuously into the sea. "'Rain that fell on Ark Morpork, though, was rain that was in trouble. "'They did terrible things to water in Ark Morpork. Being drunk was only the start of its problems. The patrician liked to feel that he was looking out over a city that worked. Not a beautiful city, or a renowned city, or a well-drained city, and certainly not an architecturally favoured city. Even its most enthusiastic citizens would agree that from a high point of vantage, 
Ankh Morpork looked as though someone had tried to achieve in stone and wood, an effect normally associated with the pavements outside all night takeaways. But it worked. It spun along cheerfully, like a gyroscope on the lip of a catastrophe curve. And this, the patrician firmly believed, was because no one group was ever powerful enough to push it over. Merchants, thieves, assassins, wizards, all competed energetically in the race without really realising that it needn't be a race at all, and certainly not trusting one another enough to stop and wonder who had marked out the course and was holding the starting flag. The patrician disliked the word dictator. It affronted him. He never told anyone what to do. He didn't have to. That was the wonderful part. A large part of his life consisted of arranging matters so that this state of affairs continued. Of course, there were various groups seeking his overthrow, and this was right and proper and the sign of a vigorous and healthy society. No one could call him unreasonable about the matter. Why hadn't he founded most of them himself? And what was so beautiful was the way in which they spent nearly all their time bickering with one another. Human nature, the patrician always said, was a marvellous thing, once you understood where its levers were. He had an unpleasant premonition about this dragon business. If ever there was a creature that didn't have any obvious levers, it was a dragon. It would have to be sorted out. The patrician didn't believe in unnecessary cruelty, while being bang alongside the idea of necessary cruelty, of course. He didn't believe in pointless revenge, but he was a great believer in the need for things to be sorted out. Funnily enough, Captain Vimes was thinking the same thing. He found he didn't like the idea of citizens, even of the shades, being turned into a mere ceramic tint. And it had been done in front of the watch, more or less, as if the watch didn't matter, as if the watch was just an irrelevant detail. That was what rankled. Of course it was true. That only made it worse. What was making him even angrier was that he had disobeyed orders. He had scuffed up the tracks, certainly, but in the bottom drawer of his ancient desk, hidden under a pile of empty bottles was a plaster cast. He could feel it staring at him through the three layers of wood. He couldn't imagine what had got into him, and now he was going even further out on the limb. He reviewed his, for want of a better word, troops. He'd asked the senior pair to turn up in plain clothes. This meant that Sergeant Colon, who'd worn uniform all his life, was looking red-faced and uncomfortable in the suit he wore for funerals, whereas Nobby... I wonder if I made the word plain clear enough said Captain Vimes. "'It's what I wear outside work, Gov,' said Nobby, reproachfully. "'Sir,' corrected Sergeant Colon. "'My voice is in plain clothes, too,' said Nobby. "'Initiative, that is.' Vimes walked slowly round the corporal. "'And your plain clothes do not cause old women to faint and small boys to run after you in the street?' he said. Nobby shifted uneasily. He wasn't at home with irony. "'No, sir, Gov,' he said. It's all the go, this style. This was broadly true. There was a current fad in Ankh for big feathered hats, ruffs, slashed doublets with gold frogging, flared pantaloons and boots with ornamental spurs. The trouble was, Vimes reflected, that most of the fashion conscious had more body to go between these component bits, whereas all that could be said of Corporal Nobbs was that he was in there somewhere. It might be advantageous. After all, absolutely no one would ever believe, when they saw him coming down the street, that here was a member of the watch trying to look inconspicuous. It occurred to Vimes that he knew absolutely nothing about knobs outside working hours. He couldn't even remember where the man lived. 
All these years he'd known the man and he'd never realised that, in his secret private life, Corporal Nobbs was a bit of a peacock. A very short peacock, it was true. A peacock that had been hit repeatedly with something heavy, perhaps. But a peacock, nonetheless. It just went to show. You never could tell. He brought his attention back to the business in hand. I want you to, he said to Nobbs and Colon, to mingle unobtrusively, or obtrusively in your case, Corporal Nobbs, with people tonight, and uh, see if you can detect anything unusual. Unusual like what? said the sergeant. Vimes hesitated. He wasn't exactly sure himself. Anything, he said, pertinent. Ah, the sergeant nodded wisely. Pertinent, right. There was an awkward silence. Maybe people have seen weird things, said Captain Vimes, or perhaps there have been unexplained fires or footprints. You know, he finished desperately. Signs of dragons. You mean like piles of gold would have been slept on, said the sergeant. And virgins being chained to rocks, said Nobby knowingly. I could see your experts, sighed Vimes. Just do the best you can. This mingling, said Sergeant Colon delicately, it would involve going into taverns and drinking and similar, would it? To a certain extent, said Vimes. Ah, said the sergeant happily. In moderation. Right you are, sir. And at your own expense. Oh. "'But before you go,' said the captain, "'do either of you know anyone who might know anything about dragons, "'apart from sleeping on gold and the bit with the young women, I mean?' "'Wizards would,' volunteered Nobby. "'Apart from wizards,' said Vimes firmly. "'You couldn't trust wizards. "'Every guard knew you couldn't trust wizards. "'They were even worse than civilians.' "'Colon thought about it. "'There's always Lady Ramkin,' he said. Lives in Schoon Avenue, breeds swamp dragons. You know, the little buggers people keep as pets. Oh, her, said Vimes gloomily. I think I've seen her around. The one with the Winnie if you love dragons sticker on the back of her carriage. That's her. She's mental, said Sergeant Colon. What do you want me to do, sir? said Carrot. Er, uh, you have the most important job, said Vimes hurriedly. I want you to stay here and watch the office. Carrot's face broadened in a slow, unbelieving grin. "'You mean I'm left in charge, sir?' he said. "'In a manner of speaking,' said Vimes. "'But you're not allowed to arrest anyone, understand?' he added quickly. "'Not even if they're breaking the law, sir?' "'Not even then. Just, just make a note of it.' "'I'll read my book, then,' said Carrot, "'and polish my helmet.' "'Good boy,' said the captain.' It should be safe enough, he thought. No one ever comes in here, not even to report a lost dog. No one ever thinks about the watch. You'd have to be really out of touch to go to the watch for help, he thought bitterly. Schoon Avenue was a wide, tree-lined and incredibly select part of Ankh, high enough above the river to be away from its all-pervading smell. People in Schoon Avenue had old money, which was supposed to be much better than new money, although Captain Vimes had never had enough of either to spot the difference. People in Schoon Avenue had their own personal bodyguards. People in Schoon Avenue were said to be so aloof they wouldn't even talk to the gods. This was a slight slander. They would talk to gods, if they were well-bred gods of decent family. Lady Ramkin's house was not hard to find. 
it commanded an outcrop that gave it a magnificent view of the city, if that was your idea of a good time. There were stone dragons on the gatepost, and the gardens had an unkempt, overgrown look. Statues of ramkins long gone loomed up out of the greenery. Most of them had swords and were covered in ivy up to the neck. Vimes sensed that this was not because the garden's owner was too poor to do anything about it, but rather that the garden's owner thought that there were much more important things than ancestors, which was a pretty unusual point of view for an aristocrat. They also apparently thought that there were more important things than property repair. When he rang the bell of the rather pleasant old house itself, in the middle of a flourishing rhododendron forest, several bits of the plaster facade fell off. That seemed to be the only effect, except that something round the back of the house started to howl, some things. It started to rain again. After a while, Vimes felt the dignity of his position and cautiously edged around the building, keeping well back in case anything else collapsed. He reached a heavy wooden gate in a heavy wooden wall. In contrast with the general decrepitude of the rest of the place, it seemed comparatively new and very solid. He knocked. This caused another fusillade of strange whistling noises, the door opened. Something dreadful loomed over him. Ah, good man, do you know anything about mating? It boomed. It was quiet and warm in the watchhouse. Carrot listened to the hissing of sand in the hourglass and concentrated on buffing up his breastplate. Centuries of tarnish had given up under his cheerful onslaught. It gleamed. You knew where you were with a shiny breastplate. The strangeness of the city where they had all these laws and concentrated on ignoring them, was too much for him, but a shiny breastplate was a breastplate well shined. The door opened. He peered across the top of the ancient desk. There was no one there. He tried a few more industrious rubs. There was the vague sound of someone who had got fed up with waiting. Two purple-fingernailed hands grasped the edge of the desk, and the librarian's face rose slowly into view like an early-morning coconut. Ook, he said. Carrot stared. It had been explained to him carefully that, contrary to appearances, laws governing the animal kingdom did not apply to the librarian. On the other hand, the librarian himself was never very interested in obeying the laws governing the human kingdom either. He was one of those little anomalies you have to build around. Hello, said Carrot uncertainly. Don't call him boy or pat him. That always gets him annoyed. Ooh. The librarian prodded the desk with a long, many-jointed finger. What? Ooh. Sorry? The librarian rolled his eyes. It was strange, he felt, that so-called intelligent dogs, horses and dolphins never had any difficulty indicating to humans the vital news of the moment, e.g. that the three children were lost in the cave, or the train was about to take the line leading to the bridge that had been washed away, or similar, while he, only a handful of chromosomes away from wearing a vest, found it difficult to persuade the average human to come in out of the rain. You just couldn't talk to some people. Ook, he said, and beckoned. I can't leave the office, said Carrot. I've had orders. The librarian's upper lip rolled back like a blind. Is that a smile? said Carrot. The librarian shook his head. Someone hasn't committed a crime, have they? said Carrot. Ook! A bad crime? Ook! Like murder? Ook! Worse than murder? Ook! 
The librarian knuckled over to the door and bounced up and down urgently. Carrot gulped. Orders were orders, yes, but this was something else. The people in this city were capable of anything. He buckled on his breastplate, screwed his sparkling helmet onto his head, and strode towards the door. Then he remembered his responsibilities. He went back to the desk, found a scrap of paper, and painstakingly wrote, Out fighting crime. Please call again later. Thank you. And then he went out onto the streets, untarnished and unafraid. The Supreme Grand Master raised his arms. Brethren, he said, let us begin. It was so easy. All you had to do was channel that great septic reservoir of jealousy and cringing resentment that the brothers had in such abundance, harness their dreadful mundane unpleasantness, which had a force greater in its way than roaring evil, then open your own mind into the place where the dragons went. Vimes found himself grabbed by the arm and pulled inside. The heavy door shut behind him with a definite click. "'It's Lord Mountjoy Gayscale Talonthrust III of Ankh,' said the apparition, which was dressed in huge and fearsomely padded armour. "'You know, I really don't think he can cut the mustard.' "'He can't,' said Vimes, backing away. "'It really needs two of you.' "'It does, doesn't it?' whispered Vimes, his shoulder-blades trying to carve their way out through the fence. "'Could you oblige?' boomed the thing. "'What?' Ugh, don't be squeamish, man. You just have to help him up into the air. It's me who has the tricky part. I know it's cruel, but if he can't manage it tonight, then he's for the choppy-chop. Survival of the fittest and all that, don't you know? Captain Vimes managed to get a grip on himself. He was clearly in the presence of some sex-crazed would-be murderess, insofar as any gender could be determined under the strange lumpy garments. If it wasn't female, then reference to It's me who has the tricky part gave rise to mental images that would haunt him for some time to come. He knew the rich did things differently, but this was going too far. Madam, he said coldly, I am an officer of the watch and I must warn you that the course of action you are suggesting breaks the laws of this city. And also of several of the more straight-laced gods, he added silently, and I must advise you that his lordship should be released unharmed Immediately. The figure stared at him in astonishment. Why, it said, it's my bloody dragon. Have another drink, not Corporal Nobby, said Sergeant Colon unsteadily. I do not mind if I do, not Sergeant Colon, said Nobby. They were taking inconspicuosity seriously. That ruled out most of the taverns on the Moorpork side of the river, where they were very well known. Now they were in a rather elegant one in downtown Ankh, where they were being as unobtrusive as they knew how. The other drinkers thought they were some kind of cabaret. I was thinking, said Sergeant Colon, what? If we bought a bottle or two, we could go home, and then we'd be really inconspicuous. Nobby gave this some thought. But I said we've got to keep our ears open, he said. We're supposed to, uh, what he said, uh, detect anything. We can do that at my house, said Sergeant Cullen. We can listen all night, really hard. That's a good point, said Nobby. In fact, it sounded better and better the more he thought about it. But first, he announced, I got to pay a visit. Me too, said the Sergeant. This detecting business gets you after a while, doesn't it? 
They stumbled out into the alley behind the tavern. There was a full moon up, but a few rags of scruffy cloud were drifting across it. The pair inconspicuously bumped into one another in the darkness. "'Is that you, Detector Sergeant Colon?' said Nobby. "'That's right. Now can you detect the door to the privy, Detector Corporal Nobs? We're looking for a short, dark door of mean appearance. <laughs> there were a couple of clanks and a muffled swear word from Nobby as he staggered across the alley, followed by a yowl when one of Ankh Morpork's enormous population of feral cats fled between his legs. "'Who loves you, pussycat? said Nobby under his breath. "'Needs must, then,' said Sergeant Colon, and faced a handy corner. His private musings were interrupted by a grunt from the corporal. "'You there, Sergeant?' "'Detector Sergeant to you, Nobby,' said Sergeant Colon pleasantly. Nobby's tone was urgent and suddenly very sober. "'Don't piss about, Sergeant. I just saw a dragonfly over.' "'I've seen a horse fly.' said Sergeant Colon, hiccuping gently, and I've seen a house fly. I've even seen a green fly. But I ain't never seen a dragon fly. Of course you have, you pillock, said Nobby urgently. Look, I'm not messing about. He had wings on him like, like, like great big wings. Sergeant Colon turned majestically. The corporal's face had gone so white that it showed up in the darkness. Honest, Sergeant. Sergeant Colon turned his eyes to the damp sky and the rain-washed moon. All right, he said. Show me. There was a slithering noise behind him, and a couple of roof tiles smashed onto the street. He turned, and there on the roof was the dragon. There's a dragon on the roof, he warbled. Nobby, it's, it's a dragon on the roof. What shall I do, Nobby? There's a dragon on the roof. It's looking right at me, Nobby. For a start... You could do your trousers up, said Nobby, from behind the nearest wall. 